this morning, we're continuing on in our study in Luke's gospel. We'll be in chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 18. You can find that on page 867 if you picked up one of our ESVs in the back. Now, what we've seen in Luke up to this point is uh, the beginnings of, of Luke exploring who Christ is. There are a lot of themes in Luke, but you can't read through the book without being confronted with this is Jesus. In fact, it, it begins uh, in the first Luke writes, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now, what, what has Theophilus been taught? Well, he's been taught about Christ. So Luke writes that he might have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. And so I think what we'll see this morning is uh, Jesus himself asking us what we believe about Jesus. But before we turn to God's word, let's uh, first go to him in prayer, his blessing on our study this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the chance to, to gather together without fear of uh, persecution and gather that we can rejoice and rejoice in studying your word together. So uh, open our ears, open our hearts that we can know you all the more, that we can understand uh, much more clearly just exactly who you are. So bless our study this morning, Lord. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that at, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, to the hearing of his word. Now, many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with this, this quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he says this about Jesus. Lewis says, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think Lewis hit the head but he's not the only one that's come to that conclusion. This is a pretty common uh, conclusion to come to about Jesus. In fact, in 2013, Bono, the lead singer of, of U2, uh, he did an interview with John Daly, uh, the president of Focus on the Family. In the interview, they talked about music and they talked about their faith. And at one point, they really get down into a deep discussion of who Jesus is. And Bono says this. He says, when people say, good teacher, prophet, really nice guy, this is not how Jesus thought of himself. 
So you're left with a challenge that either Jesus was who he said he was, or he's a complete and utter nutcase. And I believe, you know, Jesus is the son of God. Later in this interview, Bono takes a step further. He goes, you know, it's very annoying following this person of Christ around because he's very demanding of your life. You don't have to go to a university and do a PhD to understand this. You just go to the person of Christ. Now, the rest of the interview, there are some things I don't agree with and uh, that, that Bono says. Uh, but we've all heard things like this, haven't we? We've all heard someone say, yeah, he's a really great teacher. Yeah, he's a prophet, and I, he's a great way to model your life. Uh, or others will take some element of his teaching and elevate it. I really love what he says about how we're supposed to love everybody. Or I think it's really great he was willing to die for what he believed in. Those are the things that culture is saying about Christ, about who he is. And these are terrible misconceptions. So this morning in our passage, I want to look at a few things. I want to start with first who Christ was not, who he wasn't. Then we'll look at who Christ is, and then how I think we should follow him. So who Christ is not, who Christ is, and then how we should follow him. So we turn back to our text. We see that Jesus begins in prayer. We're not sure what he was praying about, but this is a pretty typical Jesus thing to do. Uh, We just came, just last week, we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000, immense crowds. But Jesus takes some time alone. He goes and prays, and the 12, the disciples, are, uh, are with him. And so in this kind of private moment, this little escape from the crowds, he asked them a question. Who do people say that I am? That's an important question. It's the same question, in fact, that Herod was asking just a few verses before. Uh, back in verse 7 of the same ch- chapter, uh, Herod is confused. He's perplexed by all these things that he's hearing, and he thinks, is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Didn't I have him beheaded? So public perception has these different uh, answers to this, to this question. So some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say another one of the prophets has, has risen. And so why would people confuse Jesus with John the Baptist? Well, they, they preached kind of the same message, didn't they? John came preaching a baptism of repentance. And Jesus begins in, in Mark saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Over and over, they are both calling people to repentance, so their, their message sounds very similar. It's a little bit like uh, two colleges back in Tennessee. Uh, one of them that I went to, a small Christian school, our motto is Christ above all. Now, our big sports rival, their motto is, in all things, Christ preeminent. My school's older. Um, but the, to an outsider, those mottos sound the same. Says, oh, you guys, it's the same school. You guys are doing the same thing, right? It's that sort of confusion that's going on here between John and Jesus. Their messages sound the same, so people think, oh, this, this is probably just John the Baptist that's been raised from the dead. Still others thought he was Elijah. Now, to understand why this thought about Elijah, we have to turn back uh, to Malachi. The last words in the Old Testament promise the return of Elijah to announce uh, the return of the Lord to his people. Malachi uh, writes this. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So what is promised? Before the Lord 
returns. Before the Messiah comes to turn the hearts of his people, Elijah will return. And it's, it's in this uh, that I think we get the first kind of hint of the messianic expectations. What, what do the people of Israel expect out of the Messiah here? And they are hoping that Jesus is Elijah. Because if Elijah has returned, that means the Messiah is coming soon. And the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming soon. That's what they're hoping. So they think, here is this great teacher. Maybe this is Elijah come to tell us that the Messiah is coming. And if the Messiah is coming, then all of our hopes will be realized. The Messiah will defeat Rome and he'll give the land back to the people of Israel. And so they desperately hope that that he is Elijah because that means the Messiah is coming. And still others thought he was a prophet. One of the old prophets that they'd heard every night probably, or that they had read many times before. So what I think when they expect or, or when they think that maybe he is one of the old prophets, they recognize that there is something different about Jesus. He comes and he's giving them food in the wilderness, and he's sitting on a mountain giving the law like Moses did. So they, they see these things that he's doing, and they hear what he's saying, and there's something different about him. And they recognize that. Both Matthew and Mark in their Gospels record people being amazed at the authority with which Jesus spoke. This is different. He is something different that they haven't seen. They knew there was something special, but they couldn't imagine that he was the Messiah. And that's what's fascinating to me about this. Whether they thought he was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets, they never considered that he was the Messiah. Because their, their expectations for what the Messiah was and was going to do and who he was going to be were so different. They wanted a general. They wanted an army commander uh, to come and free them from Rome and end all of their suffering and establish their own earthly kingdom. In a sense, they kind of wanted a, a comic book superhero. They wanted Superman. That's what they were expecting. Now, you may not know this about Superman, actually, the, the comic book character. Uh, the original author and the original artist were actually Jewish. They were children of, of immigrants to the U.S., and they gave their alien immigrant superhero an alien name, Kal-El, El being the Hebrew word for God. And so I, I expect you all know, what, what, is, what are Superman's values? What does he fight for? He fights for truth and justice and the American way which sounds a lot like the teaching of the rabbis in, in later Judaism that said we are supposed to promote truth and justice and peace. So they've incorporated their, their Jewish beliefs and expectations into the superhero. And you can all remember what you've studied in history that back in the 1930s and 40s when anti-Semitic thought and rhetoric was, was rising across the globe that you could see they'd want someone like this to come and set the world right to come and offer them hope. And this is what the people in Israel wanted too. They wanted some supernatural figure to come and give them all of the earthly things that they wanted. And so they couldn't imagine that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he's not that. He's not fitting their expectations. So Jesus listens to the answers that the disciples uh, gives, but then he, he kind of changes the question. He asks them, well, who do you say that I am? And here's something I, I don't want us to miss. We can think about Jesus, we can think about who he is and what he's done, but can we take a step like Peter does? Can we make a personal confession? 
So we've seen who Jesus is not. Now I want to look real closely at who he is. So the disciples are correct. They're aware of what the crowds are saying about Jesus, and they you know, give the right answers. But in verse 20, Jesus asks this question, and it's an incredibly penetrating question. Who do you say that I am? Have you guys ever been asked a penetrating question, a really tough, difficult to ask question? Maybe you're talking politics, which is always dangerous. And it's, it's very general. What do you think of what's going on in Congress? What do you think about the new tax increase? Everyone knows the answer to that. <laughs> but then someone looks at you and says, who did you vote for? Now it's different. You start to sweat, hands get clammy. He goes, well, this is my opinion. There's, and you've already lost, you know, you've, you've already lost that. Uh, the respect of, because he didn't have that answer ready. This is that kind of a question. This is Jesus putting the disciples on the spot. Who do you say that I am. Don't hide behind the crowds. Don't hide behind what culture is saying. Tell me who you think I am. And Peter answers. He says, the Christ of God. So what does this mean? What does Peter mean when he says this? And I, I just don't want us to skip over this because we know this. We say uh, that he's the Christ. We think about this all the time, and I don't want us to skip over this massive statement that he's making. So what does Peter mean when he says this? It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes that Peter has. It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture. It means that when God promised that Elijah would return to announce the coming of the Lord, it means that Jesus is that Lord. And it means that the great and awesome day of the Lord has arrived. It means that when God promised David that an heir of his would sit on the throne forever, it means that Jesus is that king. It means that when God promised Abraham that all of the nations of the world would be blessed through him, it means that Jesus is that blessing. It means that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when God promised a seed, a child who would be bruised and who would crush the head of the serpent, it means that Jesus is that son. So if we skip over what Peter's saying here. If we miss what it means that Jesus is the Christ, we're missing the whole point of Scripture. Scripture points to Christ. Tim Keller, <laughs> Tim Keller put it this way. He says, who is the Bible uh, really about? It's not about you. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, a much tougher garden. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who, not only offered up, who was not only offered up by his father on the mount, but who was truly sacrificed for us all. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing a palace, but gave up his heavenly palace. He didn't just risk his life, but gave his life up, and didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but he said, when I perish, I will perish for them. The Bible's about Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. So if we miss what it means that Jesus is the Christ, we're missing it. We're missing the whole thing. So Peter makes this astounding confession about who Jesus is. And something really interesting happens right after that. If you look back at verse 21 with me, Christ strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. And the theologians call this command, this instruction uh, not to tell anyone. They call it the messianic secret. 
and it kind of seems like a secret, like I've just revealed this incredible truth to you and I've, I've taught you what it means that the Christ is going to do on earth. I've taught you this, but don't go and tell anyone. So it seems like a secret. We have to remember again the, the context of this is that it comes right after the feeding of the 5,000. He didn't say it verbally, but he just told everyone who he is. They, sh- they should know. So it's not a secret, but because of the bad expectations, because of the expectations that Israel has about what the Messiah would be and, and who he is, uh, they would misunderstand, and his ministry would be changed. So that's why he tells them not to tell anyone. It's not because it's some sort of a secret. And in fact, in, in the next part, he calls himself the Son of Man. And so he is calling himself the Messiah. He's not rejecting that. He is calling himself uh, the Christ. And by using that title, Son of Man, that's how he affirms it. And if, if, if you don't know where that's from, that's from Daniel 7. Let me read just a section of Daniel 7 here. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So make no mistake, this is exactly what the Messiah is going to do. He will establish a kingdom, and that kingdom is everlasting. And people from all nations and tribes and languages will serve him. So when calling himself that title and calling himself son of man, he's affirming what Peter says, yes, I am the Christ. I am that figure from Daniel 7 where so much of those preconceived notions and ideas about the Messiah come from. But what Jesus says is the way to that kingdom is through the cross. That's what he teaches. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who suffers. He's the Christ, and the Christ will suffer and die for his people. He'll be rejected, killed, and then on the third day, he'll be raised again. No one expects this this great warrior, this great figure, no one expects him to sacrifice himself. But that's who Christ is. He's the one that came to give himself up in order to give us salvation and redemption. But to do all that, it's got to go through the cross. He's the one who will lay down his life for us. And that death that came into the world through sin, that death will be defeated by his dying on the cross. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the Christ. So let me ask you then, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a good teacher, a prophet? And when you look at your life, do you recognize your own sin? Do you see that your life and the world around you and all these things, they're not the way it's supposed to be? Something's broken. And in the midst of, of all of that pain and suffering that, that we experience, do you do what the world says and you just you buck up, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Or do you recognize the need for the Christ, for the Savior who came to suffer and die for us? And if you believe all that, if you need all that, can you make that same confession that Peter has made and without any qualifications say that Jesus is the Christ of God? Now, if you know that, if you believe that, if you can make that same confession, how does this affect us? How does this affect our every life. And I think that's what the next section is kind of dealing with. So look back at verse 23. There's a little change that happens in verse 23. He says, and he said to all, so what's happened here? 
this little private get-together, this private retreat with the disciples has, uh, has ended, and he's talking back to the crowds. If you were just fed bread in the wilderness and you're hearing someone you think might be a great prophet, someone you might think is going to announce the return of the Messiah, yeah, you're still going to be around. You're still going to be following. So the, so the retreat ends and Christ turns and he speaks to everyone. So he starts to tell them what they have to do. So to finish verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. So first, we have to deny ourselves. We, we have to deny ourselves. I'm going to say it one more time. We have to deny ourselves. So what does it mean? This is not opening a package of Oreos and only eating two when you want to eat 12. Uh, it's not settling for something less than. It's not buying a Honda when you want to buy a Ferrari. Uh, it's not less than that but we can't reduce it to only that. No, denying yourself is to shift your entire way of living. It's to change your entire worldview. Denying yourself means that you are not the most important person in your life. It means that in your heart, you have stood up from that throne that you've erected and you've said to Christ, please have a seat. John Calvin uh, puts it this way. He says, we are not our own. Therefore, let us forget ourselves and our own interests as far as possible. But we are God's own. Therefore, to him, let us live and die. We are God's own. Therefore, let his wisdom and will dominate all of our actions. We are God's own. Therefore, let every part of our existence be directed towards him as our only legitimate goal. That's denying yourself. To deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily. You all know the imagery here. Prisoners in Rome who were condemned to crucifixion were, were made to carry that, that horizontal piece of their cross. Uh, carry it to the spot where they would be made to die. And this is hardship. This is pain. This is toil. It's disappointment. It's shame. It's suffering. So Christ taught his disciples just a few verses above that he will suffer and die, and now he calls us to do the same. I know most of us here in our day-to-day -day lives, we mentioned this while we were praying earlier, that we don't face that. Most of us will never have a life-and-death situation for our faith, but as Calvin told us, it is to God and to his glory. Let us live and die. So what does it mean to take up our cross daily? I think it means that there are no casual followers of Jesus. If you would follow Jesus, there is no, eh, maybe tomorrow. No, it is today that you follow Christ. It's today, and it's tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Daily, pick up your cross. Now, have you heard the term Christer, Christian? I don't know if you guys have heard that term. Uh, it's the, someone who only goes to church on Christmas and Easter. Uh, I don't think there's any such thing. <laughs> Daily pick up your cross. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice was so immense and so huge, and God's love for us is so overwhelming, and it's constant. There's no moment that we can point to. There's no sense of a time when we can say that God is not loving us. So what's our response? Is our response to show up once or twice a year? 
No, each and every day we must wake up ready to pick up our cross. This keeps us humble. It keeps us mindful of our dependence on Christ. I think taking up your cross, it's the natural outworking of denying yourself. You can't deny yourself and give your life to something if you're kind of casual about it. In suffering, we're taught that it's God who sustains us. We're taught that it's not our own doing and it's uh, and that our lives, our very being, is from God. Through taking up our cross, we grow in maturity. We grow in our faith. That's the point. So deny yourselves, take up your cross daily, and then Jesus bids us to follow him. So if we've denied ourselves, if we've picked up our cross, there's nothing left to do but follow. That's all we can do. But if that wasn't enough, Christ gives us a couple of warnings. Look back at verse 24 and 25 with me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And have you ever tried to, to cup and hold water in your hands? Uh, it's kind of like holding on to our lives. The, the tighter and the more that we try uh, to squeeze it, the more that falls out, right? So if you want to hold on so tightly to your life, if you want to save your life that badly, if you want to gain all that the world has to offer, you're not taking up your cross. If you so desperately want to save your life, are you not despising and rejecting the sacrifice that Christ has made to save your life? Are you ashamed of what Christ that he value of what he says that he values selflessness and, and that he suffers for us. And there's the other warning. Beware, if you're ashamed of what he says, then when he returns in glory, he will be ashamed of you. So let's be honest. Who could do this? Who can be that selfless? Who can be uh, that perfect? Who can be that dedicated to Christ? Who wakes up each morning and thinks, can't wait to pick up the cross today? Jesus doesn't end there. He doesn't end with those warnings. He ends in verse 27 by saying, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So don't despair, for he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Nobano, I think, was right when he said it's quite annoying following Jesus around because he makes a lot of demands. But Luke wrote his gospel so we can be certain of the things that we've heard about Christ. We can be certain that he has offered us salvation and redemption by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is the son of God. He is the lamb who was slain for our sins. And he is the one on whom all of our hopes are laid. So if you're not ashamed to confess like Peter does, you are the Christ. And Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the King, will not be ashamed of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is humbling to read, to understand who you are. It is 
not the easiest to come and as we're in prayer to, to somehow enter into the, the throne room and, and talk to you. We are so grateful that you sent Christ, that you sent Jesus as that perfect sacrifice for our lives. So give us boldness. Give us boldness to proclaim what we know. These things that we can be certain of, give us the boldness to say as Peter did that, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. And when we know that, Father, teach us to deny ourselves. Teach us to take up our cross and to follow after you. Father, and teach us also to rejoice that you're not ashamed of us. Despite our sins and our failings and our sufferings, you are not ashamed if we can make that profession. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for how much you love us. Thank you for your Son and for sending your Spirit to guide us. We thank you and we pray all these names. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We come now to a table that is all about Jesus. Sometimes thinking about our following and how